You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Explorers. This is part two of our series on Christopher Columbus. Last time, we left Columbus as he was setting out from Palos de la Frontera, Spain, on his historic first voyage. Columbus had spent almost 15 years pitching his scheme to travel west across the Atlantic as a way to establish a trading route to the Far East. There, he could visit China and India and Japan and seek trade relations with the Grand Khan, who had been described by Marco Polo in his writings. Columbus would also be able to lay the groundwork to introduce Christianity to the region. If he could do all of this, he would be fabulously wealthy and acknowledged as the greatest mariner of the age. He found a supporter in the Spanish crown, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. Columbus departed Spain on August 3, 1492, with three ships, Santa Maria, Nina, and Pinta, as well as about 90 men. He headed southwest toward the Canary Islands, which are just west of modern-day Morocco. On the third day out, Pinta's rudder broke. This was a potential disaster. Columbus would speculate that the ship's owners, who were not keen to participate in the expedition, were behind the mishap. Their hope was to disable the ship and force Columbus to send it home. However, Martin Alonso Pinzon, one of three Pinzon brothers in the fleet, and Pinta's captain, secured the rudder with some cords and was able to direct the caravel to the Canary Islands. Once in the Canaries, Columbus ordered Pinta's rudder repaired, a task that would take three weeks. In this time, the fleet took on wood and water and made other repairs to the ships. For Nina, her triangular sails were replaced with square ones, which would make her more stable in the open sea. The small fleet departed the Canaries on September 6th. Before his departure, Columbus heard rumors that a Portuguese squadron was in the vicinity waiting to ambush his fleet. If this was true, we really don't know, but it's not likely. Rumors such as this were rampant, and Columbus was a superstitious and at times very paranoid man, who tended to believe that danger was lurking around every corner. Ultimately, no squadron intercepted the expedition. The fleet would inch westward for three days as the winds were almost non-existent. Finally, on September 9th, the winds would pick up and sweep the three ships westward. That day, Columbus and his men would lose sight of land. Now, they were truly on their own. Behind them were their families and friends and loved ones and homes. Before them was a great big blank nothing on the map. Everyone understood that they were taking an immense risk. Who knew what lay ahead? Now that we are at sea, I think now is a good time to talk about a very important element of nature that is critical to our story, the trade winds. Most people experience winds on land, where they go west to east. 
But that's not always the case at sea. And I wanted to explain a bit about the trade winds to demonstrate how Columbus could effectively sail westward and actually catch the winds. So, what are the trade winds? Well, for that answer, let us turn to Wikipedia. Quote, The trade winds are the prevailing pattern of easterly surface winds found in the tropics. The trade winds blow predominantly from northeast in the northern hemisphere and from the southeast in the southern hemisphere. End quote. Thank you, Internet. Anyhow, Columbus had heard of these winds and had likely experienced them during his earlier travels heading up and down the coast of Africa. He would ultimately prove to be a master of them, as he would repeatedly ride these winds to the New World. Okay, that out of the way, Columbus was at sea. His small fleet would have mostly good weather as they plunged west. On a good day, his ships could cover 150 or more miles. But in an interesting twist, Columbus routinely underreported the distance his fleet had traveled to the crew. He did this because he wanted to give himself some breathing room if the distance to Asia was longer than he had estimated. Remember, Columbus believed that Asia was no more than 2,400 miles or so away. His worry was that if his fleet covered that distance and no land was found, the crew might get a little antsy and would want to turn around. By fudging the distance, he hoped to gain himself some extra time, if it was needed. Over the next few weeks, the good weather held and the winds were favorable. The ships would, at times, find something of interest, such as the day a mast was seen floating in the ocean. And on another day, one of the ships sighted a tern, which is a bird that is usually no more than a hundred miles from land. These sightings would bring hope that land was near, but each time those hopes would be dashed and the fleet would continue on. As for Columbus, for the most part he kept a westerly course. As noted, birds are sometimes a sign of land, and when the fleet sighted a flock or a specific kind of bird, there was a temptation to follow those birds in hope that it would lead to landfall. But Columbus kept his tact west, even if some grumbled about his decision-making. On September 25th, a shout of land was made by the crew of Nina. This was a big deal, because Queen Isabella had promised a lifetime pension to the first man to sight land. However, the sighting was false, and the fleet pushed west. By the end of the month, the crew was getting anxious. The fleet had traveled roughly 2,500 miles, getting close to where they expected to find land. The weather had been good, even if the trade winds would falter at times, but for three weeks it had been nothing but ocean. Also, there was the issue of food and water. Ships needed to find land soon, or turn around if they had hoped to return to Spain without starving. So, as October rolled around, no land and dwindling provisions led to rumblings within the fleet. It's here that I want to talk a bit about the Pinzon brothers, particularly Martin Alonso Pinzon. As noted in the first part of the series, Martin Alonso Pinzon was a wealthy and respected navigator from Palos, Spain. He had been critical in helping secure two of Columbus's ships, plus many of the sailors to man the vessels. He had also invested his own cash in the endeavor. Columbus seems to have relied heavily on Pinzon, and he basically was second command after Columbus. Pinzon's influence over the crew was, at this time of the voyage, critical. On October 7, 1492, there were signs that indicated land was nearby. This included birds, a flock of thousands passed by them, as well as reeds, which were green, a sign they had grown nearby. Pinzon encouraged Columbus to follow these signs, advice that Columbus took. The move helped mollify the grumblings of the crew, who were becoming disenchanted with Columbus's decision-making. If Martin Alonso and his brother, Vicente Yanis, were okay with the decision, it was okay with them. I want to point out that this time frame is filled with conflicting stories, so we don't always know exactly what happened. Over 40 years later, one of the sailors who had been on the voyage, Hernan Perez Mateos, 
would testify that Pinzon wanted to hang some of the would-be mutineers, but Columbus wouldn't let him. He also said that Columbus agreed to sail for eight more days, and if they found nothing, they would return to Spain. I have also heard other variations of this story from different sources. Some sources say that Pinzon made the promise to calm the crew. Others say Columbus made the promise. And oftentimes you hear that the promise was to turn around in three days, not eight. Still other versions have the Pinzon brothers giving Columbus an ultimatum, telling him that they would continue for three more days before turning around. In the end, it adds a lot of drama to the scene, but we just don't know exactly what happened. I think the key takeaway was that Alonzo Martin Pinzon appears to have been loyal to Columbus and was critical in keeping the crew in line during these troubled times. However, by October 10th, no land had been sighted and the crew was becoming unruly, potentially mutinous. Luckily, the fleet would find more signs of land, including a type of fish that didn't swim in the deep sea, as well as a branch with berries on it that floated by the fleet. As for Columbus, he was reportedly racked by anxiety, a condition that seems to have overwhelmed him at times. He reportedly roamed the decks at all hours, hoping to sight land. He felt that the crew was on verge of mutiny. However, despite his misgivings, Columbus was not prepared to throw in the towel. To return to Spain would be humiliating. He had worked his entire life for this one chance. He would write in his log, quote, I started out to find the Indies and will continue until I have accomplished that mission with the help of our Lord, end quote. This was not a man who was going to turn around. He had a duty to his king, queen, and God to keep going. On October 11, 1492, at about 10 p.m., or 2200 hours, Columbus was walking the deck of Santa Maria and claimed that he saw a light in the distance. In his journal, he describes it as if someone was walking along the shore with a lit candle. Of course, it may have just been a trick of the night, not an uncommon thing. He called two of his men to the deck to verify what he had seen. One man confirmed Columbus's sighting, and the other did not. Whatever it was, it was now gone. Four hours later, on October 12, 1492, at about 2 a.m. in the morning, a lookout on the Pinta, Rodrigo de Triana, spotted land. Tierra, Tierra, he supposedly shouted. The ship's captain, Martin Alonso Pinzon, confirmed the discovery and fired a cannon, announcing to the fleet and to the world that land was in sight. So, Christopher Columbus had done it. He had sailed over 3,000 miles and found land. The big question was, where exactly was he? Columbus assumed that he was in China or Japan, and in the morning he would be greeted by representatives of the Grand Khan. As daylight broke, the small fleet headed toward the island they had sighted. To their surprise, they saw people on the shore, but these were naked people. They were not sophisticated men and women in colorful silk robes. Columbus guessed that he had landed on a primitive island off the coast of China. One note before we continue. Remember the promise that was offered to the crew in which the first person to sight land would receive a lifetime pension? Well, you would think Rodrigo de Triana would get that reward. But Columbus would later say that he had spotted land first by seeing that light the night before. By doing so, Columbus would lay claim to the lifetime pension for himself. It really doesn't change our story, but it's kind of an indicator of Columbus's character. Accolades and rewards were the world to him, and he would take them when he could, no matter the consequences. Anyhow, the morning of October 12th, Columbus ventured ashore, along with the two Pinzon brothers, Martin Alonso and Vicente Yaniz, as well as some other crew members. Columbus unfurled the royal standard on the island and claimed the new land for King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. So, where exactly was Columbus? It was an island, that was obvious. 
He dubbed it San Salvador, but where exactly was San Salvador? The local natives called the island Guanuhani. But to this day, we don't know exactly where Columbus made landfall. He was in the Bahamas, but which island, we don't know for sure. The main candidates are Samanake and Planakes, as well as San Salvador Island. And there's no guarantee that one of those are actually right. Just a note, we don't know if the San Salvador Island we know today is the same San Salvador that Columbus landed at. The island was actually given its name in 1925, as it was suspected of being Columbus's landing place. But again, we aren't sure. I just wanted to point that out, as it might be confusing. Anyhow, we do know that Columbus was in the Bahamas on a small tropical island. He would find the island he had landed on to be lush and beautiful, but lacking any sort of sophistication, certainly not the China of Marco Polo. The Spanish would find that the native peoples who greeted them, called Taino, were for the most part friendly. As you would expect, the natives were afraid of the Spaniards, at least at first, but ultimately Columbus would gain their trust. The Tainos were enthralled by the newcomers. They wanted to touch their clothes and their beards, something the Indians could not grow. The Spanish were called the men who came from the sky by the Tainos. Once a bit of rapport was established, the Spanish and the natives would do what most people of the time would do, despite no common language. They would trade. The Spanish would give the Tainos bells and beads and other trinkets, and in return the natives would bring the Spanish food and birds, such as parrots. As for the Taino Indians, they were a large ethnic group that dominated many of the Caribbean islands. Columbus described them in his journals, calling them well-built and with handsome bodies. Some would paint themselves black or red or white. He noted that they were a simple people who lived simple lives. He also noted that they were mostly young, no more than 30, indicating that they did not live long lives. And while the Tainos could be warlike, they were ignorant of European weapons. Columbus showed them a sword, and they took hold of the blade, ignorant to the consequences, and cut themselves. So, for the fleet, the landing on San Salvador meant fresh water and food, not to mention women. The mutiny that Columbus had feared was gone. Like Columbus, the men figured they were near Asia. They imagined gathering shiploads of spices and gold and sailing back to Spain with their treasures. Everyone involved would make a nice tidy sum of cash from the venture. Columbus was, no doubt, disappointed with his initial encounter with the Indians. The natives had virtually nothing of value. However, he did note several things. One, the people did not appear to have any religion or worship any idols. This would make them, he believed, easy converts to Christianity. Two, he thought their amiable and friendly manner would make them good servants. Columbus would later write, quote, They ought to be good servants and of good skill, for I see they repeat very quickly whatever was said to them. End quote. Here we are seeing the economic value placed on the natives by Columbus. These are potential servants, or more bluntly, slaves. Remember, slavery was commonplace in much of the world, including Europe. Columbus had likely participated in the slave trade, in some form, first as a sailor in the Mediterranean, and later as a merchant sailing in West Africa. Columbus might not have seen much value in the island, as well as the other islands he would ultimately explore, but the people themselves were a commodity, just like cinnamon or silver or pearls. This thought process is going to be very important to Columbus's future voyages, so I wanted to mention it now. A third thing that Columbus noted was the presence of gold. The natives, he saw, had very small amounts of the precious metal, using it for ornaments and simple jewelry. Of course, Columbus asked where it was from. The Tainos indicated that the gold came from other lands to the south. Columbus guessed it was Sipango, his name for Japan. 
Of course, as we have seen, the natives always said that there was gold far away, enough to get the Europeans to leave them alone. And it's a story that always seems to work. Anyhow, after two days, Columbus and his fleet weighed anchor and set off, intent on finding something more significant than a bunch of naked natives running around on a tropical island. He brought with him some Indian guides, a habit he would fall into. He would ask for guides from the locals to take him to the neighboring islands, and seize the guides if none were forthcoming. I want to point out that if you want to see a map of Columbus's voyage, I've posted one on our website at explorerspodcast.com. Now, the Caribbean consists of more than 700 islands, so when Columbus set out, he was going to find himself with a lot of sights. In the next few weeks, he would quickly come to realize just how big of a world he had stumbled upon. He would write that he would not be able to explore all the islands even if he had 50 years. Again, he was coming to grips with the enormity of these new lands. Also, these kinds of thoughts were the first hints of what this expedition was really about. This was a voyage of discovery. Of course, he wanted to find China and Japan, but with every new place he visited, he found himself revealing a new world. So, Columbus would travel around the Bahamas for about a week or so. He would land when he found proper anchorage and go ashore and claim any islands that he could. The interactions with the natives were generally the same. The natives were mostly peaceful and friendly, and they were amazed at the Europeans. Columbus would trade with them, giving them the typical bells and beads. When he wanted, he would impress them by firing off his cannons or arquebuses. Unfortunately, the natives lacked things Columbus wanted, particularly gold and pearls or knowledge of the Chinese. When they did have gold, it was in very small amounts, and when he asked where they'd gotten it, they pointed to the south, to other lands. On a side note here, in this time Columbus would come across something that would later become immensely valuable, tobacco. Some of the islanders would smoke or chew the leaf. Columbus didn't realize it, but that was a crop that would become more valuable than all the gold in the Americas. Of course, tobacco doesn't really affect our story, but I thought it was interesting. So, end of side note eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, as Columbus moved about, he diligently mapped his routes, recording distances and landmarks. But he kept some things vague, such as tides and harbors and shoals and even the exact locations of specific places. This was a common tactic of the time. This kind of information was akin to a trade secret, like the formula of Coke or the recipe for the Colonel's secret recipe blend. You just don't give that out. The secrets of these lands were his to exploit, and no one else's. Unfortunately, this vagueness of Columbus's has frustrated many historians over the centuries, as it has occasionally made it difficult to track the steps of his voyages. Anyhow, Regarding the islands he came upon, Columbus often appears almost overwhelmed by their lush tropical environment. He talks at length about the plants and animals and the exotic colors. He professes his ignorance to the many herbs and foods, but let's remember, he was not here for a vacation. He was here to find Asia for his monarchs. 
So, as Columbus wandered through these islands, he became anxious and concerned, despite his discoveries. Where were the Chinese in their grand cities? His fragile ego couldn't bear to consider that China and Japan weren't just around the corner. This sort of thing makes Columbus oddly frustrating and sad and infuriating all at the same time. He had found this amazing new world, and so often he just doesn't see past his own ambition and greed. It's kind of bonkers. Columbus was intent on getting more gold. There were signs of it, and he would trade for it when he could, and the islanders were happy to do so, but it was scant. When he asked about where to obtain more gold, the natives always pointed to the south. Thus, on October 24, 1492, Columbus left the Bahamas behind him and headed south. Four days later, he would reach another, much larger island, called Colba by the natives, which today we know as Cuba. Where exactly he landed isn't known, but speculation is that it was Baha'i Barge, on the northern shore of the island. Columbus believed he had reached either Japan or mainland Asia. However, he found no exotic Japanese or Chinese, and no grand cities, just the same Taino Indians common to the region. The encounters with the natives pretty much went like they had gone throughout the voyage. The Tainos would often flee, but once they realized Columbus and his men meant them no harm, they would return and swap goods, all the while marveling at the Europeans' ships, iron tools, and weapons. Many of the natives wondered if the Europeans were gods of some kind. In Cuba, and later in Hispaniola, Columbus would dispatch search parties inland, hoping to encounter the Chinese he assumed were nearby. His men often found bigger and more sophisticated native villages, some with populations numbering in the thousands, but no Grand Khan or gold mines. I do want to mention that while most of Columbus's encounters with the Tainos went pretty well, there were stories throughout the region of a warlike people, the Caribs, reputed to be cannibals. Columbus would not encounter the Caribs on this first voyage, but he will later, and they will be a deadly opponent. Columbus would begin a slow, deliberate exploration of Cuba's northern coast, including the harbors and rivers. Just like when he was going through the Bahamas, he would come ashore and claim the lands for Isabella and Ferdinand. He would often erect great crosses whenever he could. On November 4th, the captain of the Pinta, Martin Alonso Pinzon, while on shore, found what he believed was cinnamon. If that had been true, it would be a great discovery, as cinnamon was highly valued in Europe. But alas, it was only wild cinnamon blossoms, not the plant that they wanted. However, it wouldn't stop Columbus from boasting that the land had cinnamon. One thing you also notice about Columbus in his writings is that he is beginning to understand that he might not be able to find big boatloads of gold and silver and spices. He began to write about a lot of must-bees, I like to call them. There must be pearls in these waters. There must be gold in this river. There must be valuable spices nearby. There must be jewels in the mountains. That sort of thing. Unfortunately, he was not finding much of any of these items, even if there were hints of them. So, by late November 1492, Columbus's expedition had been in the New World for about six weeks. Things were going okay, but not great. There were no great troves of gold or spices to be had, at least not yet. It is at this time that something dramatic occurs. On November 22nd, Martin Alonso Pinzon and the ship he commanded, the Pinta, sailed away. Yep, they just left. They ignored all signals from the rest of the fleet and sailed off. And before anyone could do anything about it, the ship was out of sight. As noted, Pinzon had been a supporter of Columbus and had helped quell mutinous rumblings from the crew during the voyage across the Atlantic. So what had happened? Columbus himself was unsure, and even scholars are divided. Many believed that there was a long-simmering tension between Pinzon and Columbus. 
Perhaps Pinzon, a celebrated navigator in his own right, resented that Columbus was the boss. Others, including Columbus, speculate that Pinzon and his crew, taken in by stories from the local natives, went off on their own toward the island of Babbeck, a place said to have great quantities of gold. Ultimately, we don't know the whole story. But fear not, we will revisit the fate of the Pinta in a short while. I do want to note that Nina, which was captained by Alonzo Martin's brother, Vicente Yanis, did not abandon Columbus. What that means is anybody's guess, but it makes for some interesting gossip. In the end, Columbus was down a ship. With Santa Maria and Nina, Columbus would continue his explorations. He would reach the western tip of Cuba and began to consider that he had indeed found an island and he was not on mainland Asia. Next, he would strike out east toward yet another island, departing on December 5th. The fleet would only have to travel about 50 miles before reaching the island of Hispaniola, which today comprises the nations of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Again, on Hispaniola, Columbus would continue to explore the northern coastline, finding many Indians, but no Chinese. One thing that does come across in this time is Columbus's evaluation of the lands he was discovering. He began to realize that the land could be exploited. In Cuba and Hispaniola, he observed that the lands could be settled, and that there was a need to build a fortress of some kind. He also saw a people who could be conquered. He called the natives childish and cowards in the face of the Europeans. He claimed that ten men could put ten thousand natives to flight. And while he acknowledges the fertile soil and the many people that the land supported, his chief focus is on extracting resources like gold and pearls, all of which he assumed were available in abundance. On December 15th, Columbus would reach the island of Tortuga, just off the coast of Hispaniola. Tortuga would later become famous as a pirate stronghold in the 17th century. On December 22nd, on Hispaniola, Columbus encountered a powerful local lord, a man named Guacan Nagari. Hearing of Columbus's desire for gold, the chief, or cacica, presented the admiral with a belt of hammered gold, as well as other golden items. The two men would form a good bond. So, while Columbus pondered his next move, on the evening of December 24th, disaster would strike the expedition. With his two ships at anchor at the present-day Cape Haitian Haiti, the steersman for the Santa Maria decided it was okay to leave the helm in the hands of a cabin boy so that he could take a nap. The night was calm, and he saw no harm, despite the fact that it was a practice forbidden by Columbus. Well, as you can imagine, that is a disaster waiting to happen. Despite the calm conditions, Santa Maria would drift onto a sandbank. Merry Christmas, Admiral Columbus. The ship would run aground and be wrecked. The damage was unrepairable. When Columbus realized the extent of the disaster, it was said that he wept in front of his men, something uncommon for him. So, here was Columbus on Christmas morning, finding a disaster in front of him. How could this have happened? No doubt he was wondering if God was against him. But as we have seen, Columbus was a resilient guy. He adapts. With the help of the Indians, the Santa Maria stores were transferred to the shore. And it is here that Columbus decided to build the fort that he had been thinking about. For Columbus, he embraced the disaster. It was a sign from God. Thus, the admiral ordered the wreckage of the Santa Maria to be used to construct a small fort. It would take the men ten days to accomplish the task. When it was done, they stocked it with food and wine, enough to last a year. He called the fort La Navidad, or the Nativity. Again, if you want to see a map of the location of the fort, as well as Columbus's travel route, you can find it on our website at explorerspodcast.com. La Navidad was built in the lands of the powerful cacica, Guadcant Nagari, who was friendly to Columbus and promised to bring more gold to the Spanish. With his fort in place, Columbus decided it was time to head back to Spain. 
He would leave Diego de Arana as the commander of La Navidad, and Rodrigo Escobedo and Pedro Gutierrez as lieutenants. Thirty-nine men would remain on the island. A physician was even left to attend to the men's well-being. The primary task of the fort was to collect the gold the natives would be bringing to the Spanish, as well as locate any sources of gold or other valuables. Columbus might not have been collecting a lot of gold during this voyage, but he had set up a mechanism to do such a thing. This would allow Columbus to return to Spain and announce to the world his accomplishments. But Columbus was also anxious about the return to Spain. He had not found Asia. He had not greeted the Grand Khan. He had no hoard of gold or pearls or spices. And he had lost a ship, Santa Maria. And let's remember, the Pinta was gone as well. Ah, the Pinta. Remember, Martin Alonso Pinzon had slipped off with the ship back in November. Where was she? Had she sunk? Was Pinzon back in Spain right now, spinning stories of Columbus's failures? Well, much to Columbus's relief, neither of those things had happened. Instead, on January 6th, the wayward Pinta reappeared. So, what was the deal with the Pinta? Sadly, we really don't know. Martin Alonso Pinzon claimed that he had sailed away under duress, meaning the crew had forced him to go. But Columbus didn't believe the man. He accused Pinzon of being greedy and succumbing to the stories of a rich island with gold. Columbus was rightfully furious, but it was a delicate situation. Remember, the captain of the Nina was Martin Alonso's brother, Vicente Yanis, and many of the men in the fleet were supporters of the Pinzons. One source says that Columbus threatened to hang Pinzon, while others say that Pinzon was angry at Columbus for leaving the 39 men at La Navidad, since he doubted their ability to sustain themselves that far from home. In the end, it appears that Columbus let the rogue adventure of Pinzon slide. He could not afford to have the crew turn against him at this stage. Instead, he bit his tongue and did not punish Pinzon. At this time, the ships would spend some days being refitted for the upcoming ocean voyage. They were in tough shape after almost a year at sea. Shipworms, the scourge of all wooden ships of the era, threatened the hulls of the vessels. So, after repairs, Pinta and Nina would head east along the coast of Hispaniola. Their final stop would be on January 13, 1493. There, the Spanish would have their first violent encounter with the Indians of the Caribbean. The fight would not be with the Caribs, who were mentioned earlier and were sort of the boogeymen of the islands. This melee was with the warlike Segueos, who were closely related to the Tainos. After the fight ensued, one of the Segueos was slashed with a sword, and another was shot with a crossbow. The Indians quickly withdrew, and that was the extent of the fight. And while the encounter was brief and limited, it was a preview of things to come. Columbus called the location of the battle El Golfo de las Flechas, or the Gulf of Arrows, which is the modern-day Gulf of Samana. So, with the melee behind them, Columbus and his fleet would put to sea on January 16, 1493. He would have with him seven Taino Indians, not to mention all sorts of plants and animals and foods that he had collected during his wanderings. And let us not forget gold. It wasn't a lot, but he hoped what he had would be enough to encourage his monarchs. The voyage back to Spain was relatively uneventful for the two ships until February 14th when a great storm struck. It would be the worst storm that the ships would encounter during their entire voyage. Columbus, who was on the Nina, would be separated from the Pinta, which was still commanded by Martin Alonso Pinzon. The storm so frightened Columbus that he took a written account of his voyage and placed it in a barrel, and had the barrel thrown overboard. The writings had instructions for whoever found the message to take to Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. Even if Nina sank, Columbus wanted the world to know about his accomplishments. But no storm was going to take Columbus and his ship. He kept Nina on target and rode out the squall. 
The next evening, September 15th, land was sighted. It was one of the Azores, a group of islands directly west of Spain and Portugal. However, the Azores were Portuguese territory, so Columbus was reluctant to land. But his ship needed supplies and repairs, so he would anchor off of Santa Maria Island on February 18th. Roughly a dozen of his crew went ashore to gather supplies, but they were taken prisoner by the locals, who thought them to be pirates. It would take two days of negotiations before Columbus's men would be released. Repairs were made to Nina, and she continued on towards Spain. On March 4th, another storm would strike Nina, and the little caravel was damaged. Columbus would be forced to dock in Lisbon. Now, let's remember some history here. King John II of Portugal had rejected Columbus's proposed voyage several years back, and here comes Columbus into port, with gold, strange natives, and wild stories of the lands to the west. Columbus would be interviewed by Bartolomo Diaz, the man who had rounded the southern tip of Africa a few years earlier, and the subject of one of our earlier podcasts. Ultimately, the Portuguese came to believe that Columbus's voyage was a violation of the 1479 Treaty of Alcacovas. As a reminder, the treaty forbade Spain to explore south of the Canary Islands, but it did not stop Columbus from going west or north, which is what he had done. Still, the Portuguese were threatened by Columbus's voyage. If he actually had reached Asia, it was undermining their future plans. But despite all of these concerns, Columbus would be sent on his way on March 11th. There are rumors that King John and his ministers considered having Columbus assassinated, but there is no proof that such a plot was hatched. While in port, Columbus would send letters to several Spanish officials, touting his discoveries. This would help get out the word of the news of his accomplishments. Columbus would reach Palos de la Frontera, where his journey had started the previous August, on March 15, 1493. He had completed what is probably the most important voyage of discovery in the history of the world. Interestingly enough, the Pinta, under Martin Alonso Pinzon, arrived in Palos the same day, shortly after Columbus. Pinzon had actually landed near Vigo, Spain, on March 1. Thinking Columbus and Nina lost, he had sent a letter to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, announcing the expedition's discoveries. The letter has been lost, but no doubt it boasted his accomplishments. Now, if you are thinking that there is a conflict brewing between the two navigators, you would be wrong, because fate would bring it all to a swift end. Pinzon had been sick on the voyage back to Spain, suffering from exhaustion and fevers. Not long after returning to Spain, he would die. Now, I want to take a quick moment and wrap up the story of Martin Alonso Pinzon. Pinzon was a critical figure on this first voyage. Without him, the expedition would likely have failed. It was Pinzon who had procured two good ships, and manned those ships with decent sailors. Plus, he had helped keep the crew in line when they were thinking of tossing Columbus overboard and heading home for Spain. Some consider Pinzon a co-discoverer of the Americas. However, Pinzon made one critical error. He left Columbus, likely in a quest for riches. Some argue that he got separated from Columbus by accident, or that the only reason he went off was because Columbus was hoarding the gold or being stubborn. Whatever the reason, it reflects poorly on the man, which is a shame because he appears to have been a successful and extremely skilled navigator and leader. His willingness to sail with Columbus shows that the man had guts as well as intelligence. So, Martin Alonso Pinzon, the captain of the Pinta, was dead. His death likely saved Columbus a whole lot of headaches, as any challenges to Columbus died with Pinzon. One last side note about Pinzon. There is speculation that he died of syphilis. There is a lot of evidence that points to Europeans bringing syphilis back to Europe in 1493, after contracting the disease from the Caribbean islands. No matter what, 
Pinzone probably did not get the disease in the Caribbean, as syphilis usually takes at least a few years to kill someone. He likely had some other sickness. No matter, it does beg the question of whether Pinzone had been sick for some time. Perhaps he had an illness that contributed to his erratic decisions. That would explain a lot. Anyhow, that is it for Martin Alonso Pinzone. Back to Columbus. He had successfully returned to Spain. No, he had not found Asia, even if he believed that he had. There were no trade packs with the Grand Khan, and no spices or chests full of gold. But he had found something special, a new world. Some things to point out. Columbus had not lost a single man on the expedition, and he had claimed dozens of islands for Spain. His men had been amazingly restrained in dealing with the natives. Following Columbus's lead, they had kept up good relations, had traded extensively, and generally avoided alienating the native population, unlike so many explorers in similar situations. And most importantly, his voyage had shattered dozens of myths and answered hundreds of questions, not to mention that it offered innumerable opportunities. He had begun to reveal the great big blob of nothing that had resided on the world's maps. That is an amazing accomplishment. By April, news of Columbus's discovery was sweeping through Europe. The letters he had written would be copied and reprinted in cities all over the continent. These letters detailed the accomplishments of the expedition and, in exaggerated fashion, described the lands and opportunities that were available. These letters made Columbus famous overnight. So, Columbus headed to Barcelona to meet with the king and queen. He would arrive at the Spanish court in triumph. Ferdinand and Isabella would greet Columbus warmly, praising him for his accomplishments and leadership. Columbus was, no doubt, in his glory, receiving such adulation. The admiral would present his monarchs with a variety of offerings, including chili peppers, parrots, monkeys, as well as six Taino Indians who had survived the ocean voyage. There was also gold. Not a lot of it, but enough to spark the crown's interest. Columbus told them of the great land, the people, and the opportunities. He was sure that there was gold and cinnamon and pearls in abundance, and there was an opportunity to colonize the lands and evangelize the population. He had started the process of colonization by building the fort of La Navidad. His next step, he argued, was to assemble another fleet and return. The Spanish monarchs were happy with Columbus and his voyage, and they agreed another voyage was necessary, and quickly. They did not want any other nation, particularly Portugal, to try and usurp their discovery. On May 20th, 1493, Columbus was appointed leader of the second voyage to these new lands. He was given the title of Viceroy and Admiral of the Ocean Sea and the Indies. So, almost as soon as he was back, another voyage to the New World was set into motion. This one would be bigger and more ambitious, and the results would be very, very different. So, that is it. The first voyage of Christopher Columbus. As we've said, probably the most important voyage of discovery in the world's history. Next time, we will set sail with Columbus as he heads off on his second voyage of discovery. I hope you've enjoyed our tale thus far. Thank you for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. 
it can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.